Good morning. It's good to be with you guys this morning. Has been an interesting week in our city and area. Uh, spent probably equivalent of a day and a half this this week in uh, areas that have been affected, and had the privilege Wednesday, the day after the tornado, to uh, spend the entire day with us, our denominational state director of disaster relief. And uh, I got to ride with him, and we we followed the entire path of the tornado, and we're able to meet a lot of people and pray with people. And uh, there's really places that are very devastating, as you know. And and um, I think that Linwood was really hard to see. Uh, not not much. The, the difference between the, generally there's exceptions, of course, but. Between South Lawrence and Linwood is is uh, in South Lawrence. Uh, while there's exceptions, most of the houses they, they they're, I mean they're bad. A lot of them are getting totaled, but they lost their roofs and part of. In Linwood, it's mainly just foundations left and piles of rubble. There's not many walls standing uh, where it went. So it was really it got stronger as you know as it went. Um, Wednesday, I spent some or. I, Met a man who I didn't really get to spend time with him, but he he had found out that day he had cancer. He'd had it before, and it came back, and in the tornado that night, and he he was just devastated. And uh, he had, you know, he said about my social security card's gone, my driver's license gone, my car keys are gone. He said I don't have anything, just nothing, you know. So it's really uh, sobering at times to, to be with people, and but it's also a privilege to be with them. And we get to pray with them. And so Emily will give more details at the end of the service, but uh, there are opportunities to go help. Like often what happens in a situation like this, the first three or four days there'll be like a flood of people wanting to help and donate. And and mo- for the most part, you can't uh, during that first few days because the first responders are in there and they're getting... In, in this case, because there weren't many injuries, the first responders are primarily um, the men and women turning on the power, working for Westar, and then insurance adjusters and assessors, and then, you know, family and close friends. Uh, but you may have tried, unless you have a reason to be there, you can't get in there. Um, but we can, with uh, because of our affiliation with his Ascend Relief. And so we're going to be going in there this afternoon. Uh, and then tomorrow as well, and then there'll be opportunities. As the days roll on, uh, the news media will diminish. Don't don't be fooled. There'll probably be significant ways that we can continue to help. And uh, so we'll we'll do our best to kind of keep you informed through email. Another reason: make sure you're on our email list and let you know of opportunities to help and serve. And and uh, so we'll we'll be down there this afternoon. Emily will give those details. Um, it, it may change, but just FYI, you can't just drive down there. Not only, unless your family, they might probably let you in. But, but as of today, you still have to have a badge. So you you can't just go down there and say I'm with Rock Hill Church or something like that. You have to get a badge for each day. Right now, that that could change soon, but you know, we don't know yet if it will. So it kind of depends too on who the officer is at the at the gate if he's let some some are a little bit more permissive than others but it's 
I, I wouldn't advise it. Just go in there and try to help on your own without getting a badge. And we'll, we'll give you more details about how you do that in a few minutes. So, uh, welcome to summer. Uh, it, it, does it hit you that it's summer? You know, it kind of did me last night. I, we were c- coming home and it was like, in three weeks, the days are going to start getting shorter. <laughs> I know, isn't that awful? I just, yeah, I was like, shut up, you know. <laughs> Gosh, but it's summer and uh, I'm glad it's here. So let's enjoy it. And uh, Ben, at the end of that message today, Ben's going to talk a little bit about something that we're kind of rolling out called Common Summer this this next few months. And it's related to the messages and kind of what we're, how we're journeying through God's Word uh, this summer. So I started seeking uh, direction from the Lord and talking to others several months ago for the summer. And uh, summer's a different animal. You know, people are in and out. And um, we have a project students here for the first time. Glad you guys are here. They're going to introduce themselves. Some of them may not know it yet. They didn't check their group on this morning, but we're going to bring them up and make them introduce themselves <laughs> at the end of the service. Well, yeah, welcome to Rocky Hill. We're so glad you're here. Uh, so I, as, I, as I've sought God's counsel on what do we do this summer, um, what, what emerged was kind of this vague idea of what does it mean to be free? What does it mean to be a free person? What does it mean to be free in Christ? What does it mean to be a free people? What's that look like? And so as I, as I got into that and started doing some, some Bible study and kind of, you know, looking up every verse in the Bible that has those words freedom or free in it, uh, my quest led me to the book of Exodus. Uh, Exodus, a major theme of Exodus, if you're familiar with it, it's about an enslaved people who become free. And uh, my original thought was, well, we'll start there, and uh, then we'll kind of move from there into the New Testament. That was the original plan. And, uh, but as I, as I continued to be with it this week, okay, full confession, three days ago, um, I... I decided we're going to be in Exodus this summer, and uh, and we're not even going to be in the whole book. We hope to get through the first 15 chapters. We'll see how it goes. And uh, so we want to invite you in this conversation about what it means to be free, and as we see that through the prism of this incredible book called Exodus. And again, Ben will explain more later. We're going to invite you to share insights. Uh, if that's going well, we, we, we'd also like you to even do it. Maybe we'll throw a common Sunday in where we'll just have you guys share those insights on a Sunday. Um, our desire is to hear the voice of God. That's always true on Sunday. Our, our understanding of like even an effective message isn't like it wasn't well structured and clear and all that. We, we want those things. But our, the, the bottom line question is, did we hear from God? And so as we go through Exodus, we want to hear from God. And our, and our understanding of community and church is, that just doesn't happen only from the preacher. It happens in community. It happens in collaboration. It doesn't just happen on a stage on Sunday. In fact, often the most significant ways we hear from God aren't from the stage on Sunday. 
So it happened in a lot of different ways. And so we really, I really mean this. We really want to invite you guys in as, as you're learning from God's Word through His Holy Spirit, as Christ's Word is becoming living and active. I want to encourage you to be a steward with that. It doesn't necessarily mean you have to share it with the whole church, but be a steward of it, whatever whatever that, that means. And you're going to be given the opportunity to share some of those with the whole church this this summer. So, welcome to Exodus, the second book of the Bible. Um, Exodus is a book of history, but it's history in the ancient sense of the word more than the modern sense of the word. Exodus is most concerned, not about getting everything lined up historically or chronologically. It's concerned with theology. It's concerned with God. It's also concerned with anthropology. It's concerned with men and women, their children. We'll especially see that today. Exodus is a story of a God and a people in relationship. It is a theography, kind of saying that awkwardly. It's a telling about God, a theography. It's a telling about his relationship with a people and some individuals that are part of that people. It's also a telling of his relationship with some of the enemies of the people of God. We'll see that today, people who became enemies It's not trying to present to us that watertight definitions always of who God is. It will expose many of his attributes like justice and mercy and truthfulness and holiness and redemption. We'll see those things. It also will at times present theological tensions for us. That's one thing that's true about God's word It doesn't iron out all the tensions frequently. It will throw some things at us and kind of leave them there for us to struggle with, to wrestle with. It's important to understand that Exodus was written to a people who came after the people that whose story it's telling. It was written to a community of faith. It was intended to be God's word for a later generation, that they might learn from the history of its people. That's what history does. It tells of the past. It tells a story of God and a story of a people to a community of God, a community of faith. And so now, 2019, it comes to us. It is coming to us, a people of faith, a community anchored in Christ. Which, by the way, the major themes of Exodus are fulfilled in the purpose of, in the person of Jesus. We'll take a look at that some this summer. Exodus, especially in the beginning, is going to be a story of a refugee people. A people who've been displaced. They are displaced from the land that God had promised to them. They're not living in that place of promise. They're living in the land of Egypt. They had to go there because of famine. Maybe you've read Genesis. Um, Joseph was the one who led them there. Today, we begin this incredible journey of this refugee people. 
We're going to move from Genesis, which is a story of kind of a a family, really, beginning with a man named Abraham, whose story of his family and subsequent generations is exposed. We're going to move from that familial context to a nation. We're going to move from God personally dealing with these kind of patriarchs of faith to God dealing with a community, a people that's actually going to grow quite large. We're going to see interactions that has like broader scope than just a family, just an individual. So we're going to at times see the mess of God dealing with a people, not just an individual and what that means. We're also going to observe some contrast. We're going to contrast between powerful people who appear to be calling the shots in human history and powerless peasants, even slaves, who don't look like they're doing much of anything, to be honest with you. In the middle of that, we're going to see God's heart for oppressed people. And hopefully we'll learn from that. Today, the oppressed people will be mostly endangered babies. We'll see that. Today, we're looking at the first chapter, and we're going to see two very striking contrast in the first chapter. We're going to see a contrast between a very powerful king, his name is Pharaoh, at least that's his title, who responds to a national crisis, an emergency out of fear. Fear driven by the pride of nationalism and an anxiety of self-preservation. And as a a result, finds himself crosswise with God. Interesting. This king's going to be contrasted with two individuals. Two very socially unimportant individuals. They have no measurable social status. But they exercise tremendous grit and courage in the face of insurmountable odds. And as a result, they find themselves not crosswise, but with God, but in the crosshairs of His blessing. It's quite a contrast. It's also going to present a contrast of two peoples. Not just a pharaoh with two individuals, but two peoples. A politically free people who follow their king into great exploitation and oppression. And they become co-oppressors themselves. And an emerging minority group who, as a result of those who would lead them, find identity as a people of God. This people who are oppressing, on the other hand, we're going to see them lose their dignity, their goodwill, a partnership they once enjoyed with this minority group. It's going to look like the purposes of God are on the brink of disaster in this story. So, let's jump into it. Chapter 1, verse 5 verses. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Esher. 
The descendants of Jacob number 70 in all. Of course, Joseph was already in Egypt. We start with the phrase, these are the names. This is not just a roll call going on. Names meant something in antiquity. Your name meant something. To have your name recorded in ancient history is very significant. So one of the things I'd ask you to do is pay attention who's named today as well as who is not. Whose name we don't know. In verse 5, this group, this group of 12, are called descendants of Jacob. Not really a good translation. Literally it reads, they came from the hip of Jacob. That's interesting. It's kind of a rare way of calling someone a descendant to come from the hip. Well, this is actually a flashback. If you're familiar with the 32nd chapter of Genesis, Jacob, one of these patriarchs, has a wrestling match with who? God. And as he wrestles with God throughout the night, this angel, or we think, wounds his hip. And he cripples him. Jacob walks the rest of his life limping. Now here we are. These people came from the hip of Jacob. Isn't that interesting? Something else happened that night when Jacob wrestled. The next morning, God renamed Jacob. He called him Israel, which means one who struggles, one who wrestles with God. So a whole nation is identified with the name Israel. Boy, history has borne the reality of that name out, has it not? One who wrestles with God. Verse 6, Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. Time is advancing. But the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. By the way, this is probably about the year 1600 B.C., in case you're wondering. They multiplied greatly, they increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. So we start with 70. Now we fast forward a few generations, and this people has absolutely exploded in number. They're on their way to becoming probably about 2.4 million people by the time they leave. So, if you're familiar with the beginning of Genesis, if we go back, God's first commandment to man was what? Be fruitful and multiply. Well, they're doing a pretty pretty good job of that. They're being fruitful and multiplying. We've seen in these 70 people in Genesis, this small tribe, them being true to this name. They indeed struggle with God. There's a lot of Pain in their story. Now the tribe is a large entity. It's gone from families to tribes to a people group. And don't miss that part of the story. It's kind of easy just to kind of read past it. These are people like us. 
these thousands and tens of thousands, and that will become hundreds of thousands of people. These are people with families and hopes and dreams and drama and disappointments and victories and failures. They have stories. We just aren't privy to them. But they did. So the real story turns in verse 8. A new king to whom Joseph meant nothing came to power in Egypt for probably a couple hundred years from when Abraham first went to Egypt now. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous and if war breaks out, will join our enemies. Fight against us and then leave the country. I guess these are the kinds of things that pharaohs and political heads do. I want to stop here for a minute and let us struggle with this because this little narrative begs some questions for me. What is the king's crisis? What is it? Someone shout it out. Yeah, there's too many of them. They're everywhere. This minority group. The people of God have become too numerous. Was it really a crisis? Did it have to be? Or was it more of a perceived crisis? Those are the kinds of questions that rise up for me. It's easy to armchair quarterback this thing. I I get that and look back in history and have it all figured out. I wasn't in that pharaoh's sandals or shoes or whatever he wore back then. But it, it is fair, I think, to ask some questions. Did he consider other options than this one? Did he have to respond with oppression and exploitation? Could he have looked beyond the problem and seen opportunities? Let's consider this. This people, this minority group, is a people birthed out of the vision of God. This is a people God says, I'm going to bless you, Abraham, so that you might be a blessing to the nations. It's through this people I will display my heart for all peoples. It is too small a thing, he says the prophet Isaiah, for you, for myself to just reveal me to your tribe. I am using you as a conduit to the world. This is the people that Pharaoh is issuing this edict. If only Pharaoh could have pulled back the curtain and seen that. Of course he couldn't. He was not aware of the promise surely given to Abraham. But don't let him off the hook. Because in that statement, then a new king who knew nothing of Joseph is filled with culpability, with responsibility, if you will. It's not an amoral statement. He knew nothing of Joseph. It's not just simple lack of information that's being stated here. Pharaoh has chosen not to know. 
whatever that looked like, to not remember, to forget or not pay attention to the history of this people who once enjoyed a real partnership with Egypt, a reciprocal giving and taking, a we're glad you're here, let us host you. Was God presenting an opportunity to this Pharaoh, to Egypt, an opportunity to find a whole nation in this blessing? To be blessed by Him, to come to know Him, to come to know His ways, His truth, His life. To be shaped in His kingdom, rather than by the views and attitudes that accompanied His nationalism. Where self-preservation becomes the primary objective. Joseph doesn't, Pharaoh doesn't know Joseph or his people. And as we'll see in the weeks to come, he won't know them. He won't know his God, their God. He doesn't know their God, but God knows. God's seeing, he's watching. He knows what's going on. Maybe Pharaoh missed an opportunity. I don't know. I really labored over this part this week. It was troubling to me, you know, as I thought about our nation, I thought about politics. It's not my area of expertise, so I'm going to try real hard not to say too much here. You know, I don't want to get in over my head, but at the same time, I think these are fair questions. There are three that emerged to me. There's probably better ones that you'd come up with. One... As the people of God, what is our posture towards those in our country who are our citizens? Now, I know I'm preaching to the choir for the most part because God's given us many friends in our community. But we do live in a larger community called our nation. What is our posture supposed to be towards immigrants? Let me give you a couple of passages here, at least for us. Go to that next one there, John. You can uh, go to the next one. I put it in the wrong place. I think it's the next one. There we go. This is later in Exodus. These are God's words. Do not oppress a foreigner. And here's why. For you yourselves know what it's like to be a foreigner. Because you were foreigners in Egypt. And then later in Leviticus, God's giving instructions. When a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated how? As your native born. Love them as yourself. And there it is again, for you are foreigners. I am the Lord your God. Now, it may be above my pay grade to apply this to national politics. But God's word is really clear in speaking to his people. That much we can be clear about. This is his word to us. How we treat people who aren't like us, who are our guests, who maybe worship different gods or a god. We're to treat them as we would one of our own. This isn't a rebuke. Honestly, I think we as Rock Hill do a pretty good job of this. I am saying we live in a larger community. We have to wrestle with this issue. That was the easy one. Number two, question emerged for me. I don't have to tell you there's a debate in our country over what's called nationalism. Is that okay to ascribe to nationalism? Well, I better give you a definition. 
because that's part of the problem of the debate. I try to stay away from social media on this because I haven't found it to be very helpful. I haven't found it to be very civil. Um, but I do try to pay attention to it. Um, I have a daughter who's a political science PhD student, and that helps me. She tells me what's going on. Here's that expert Google's definition of nationalism. You'll find different ones, by the way. So it's important that we, that we do define terms when we talk about them like this. Here's Google's definition. Identification with one's own nation and support for its interests. Okay. Comma. Especially to the exclusion or detriment of the interest of other nations. Now we just went somewhere else, didn't we? It's the second part of the definition that becomes a little bit problematic. It gets a little messy for us, doesn't it? That's distinct from patriotism. Let me give you Google's definition of that. Devotion to and vigorous support for one's country. Is there a place in the kingdom of God for love of country? Surely there is. There's a place for city, state, country, self, family. But our ultimate allegiance is not to country, is not to family, it's not for our tribe, it's not even to ourself. It is to Christ who said, Seek first my kingdom. If you want to be a nationalist, there's your nation. Seek first my kingdom and its righteousness. And all these things will be given to you as well. What what we've done historically in the church, my observation is we've tried to stay away from this kind of conversation to our great detriment. We need to do business with these questions. We don't have to be experts on them, but we do need to do business with them. Because we're part of a nation. We're part of a community Embracing the interest of yourself or your family or your country can never be ultimate. That is not your ultimate allegiance if you're a follower of Jesus. It is to Christ. If you embrace the interest of your country to the detriment of others, it's not working for the disciple of Jesus. It doesn't work. I'm not saying there's not a place for defending one's nation. I think there probably is in some cases. But Jesus taught us if we want to save our lives, we what? Lose it. If we want to, if we will lose our lives for the sake of His kingdom, we'll find it. This matters deeply. Any way that includes exploitation and oppression or shrewdness in a way that hurts others will put us crosswise with God as it did with Pharaoh. Let's pick up in verse 11. You may have to go backwards, John. By the way, John's behind the screen today. They're having trouble with their projector. So He's really the wizard of Rock Hill. <laughs> verse 11. So... Pharaoh put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. 
So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor and brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. And all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. How many times in history has this been repeated? Pharaoh's posture towards this ethnic group becomes his people's posture. He leads them right into this. Probably because of fear. Prejudice is contagious. I know, I grew up with it. What might have been a powerful alliance between two people groups is now a national and cultural, in the words of Daniel Pond, hot mess. (laughs) Israel is forced into bitter service. That word service is used here five times, this little paragraph. Service. It's used not in a positive way, not in the way we think about it. Like, let's serve someone. Like what we want to do for the people in Linwood and South Lawrence. God's immigrant people are forced into servitude. They become a suffering people. They're reduced. Anytime a group is exploited and oppressed, they get reduced. Because you're, you're dealing with their dignity and their humanity when you do that. It will not be easy for this country to move past this, this nation, Israel. In the same way we're familiar with race in our country, it's not easy for them to move past it. It has a psychological effect of the DNA and the culture of people. And what Pharaoh intended for evil. Because God is watching. Becomes something very different. Yes, it becomes part of their identity. They are an oppressed people. But they are also the recipients of God's word. Love the foreigner as you love yourselves. For you were once one. So Pharaoh's strategy of oppression becomes counterproductive. The more he oppresses, the more they grow. It's like the church in East Asia. The more it has been put down, the more it has multiplied. Two nations are now being shaped. One is a suffering people. We've talked about that. But then there's Egypt, the one who is dishing out the oppression. They're also being shaped. They're losing their humanity too. Nobody's winning. That's what happens. We've seen this in our own country. But in the midst of all this, a larger question begins to emerge for the immigrants. Right in the middle of their bitter service, here's the question. Who will they fear? Who will they serve? Enter on the scene two very inconspicuous women. Verse 15. The king of Egypt said to two Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shipra and Pua, when you're helping these Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery school stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, get rid of him. Kill him. But if it's a girl, 
and let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Shipra and Pua. Now we have names. Two names. Right in the middle of this national crisis. Two names. Not the name of Pharaoh or his powerful cabinet members, but two slaves. Shipra and Pua. Shipra, by the way, means beautiful. That's what her name meant. We're not so sure about Pua. Shipra and Pua are midwives. They're not socially important, except to the mothers of these children. And then they're the most important people on the planet in that moment. And they're put in a seemingly impossible situation. No win. Who will they fear? Who will they serve? And I think their response is, is nothing short of breathtaking. Shipra and Puah fear God. That's what we're told about them. We're not told much else. We're not told they're women of great compassion or integrity or generosity. They possess great leadership. Maybe they did. We're told they feared God. They possessed that quality that the book of Proverbs says is the beginning of wisdom. To fear God is where wisdom starts. They feared God. They understood that to commit infanticide was to put oneself at risk with their Creator, even though it, to refuse to do so put them at great risk with Pharaoh. Surely they were trembling before Pharaoh when they did what they did, or didn't do what they didn't do, but it was a good trade for them because they feared God. By the way, hello God shows up here in verse 17. His name is now in the story. (coughs) Yahweh. He's explicitly mentioned for the first time. And here we go. This intermingling of God and a people is beginning. And that ought to be a little bit familiar to us. This intermingling with God and a people. In the New Testament, that's called church. The people who've met God, the people who have stumbled into the way of His kingly rule, the people who share in His life, I've come that you might have life, Jesus said. You might have it abundantly. The people who are displaying the manifold wisdom of God, as Paul wrote, is now through the church the manifold wisdom of God is being displayed. The people who are to declare the greatness and goodness of God, listen to the words of Peter, you're a chosen people, you're a royal priesthood, get this, a holy nation. A people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. Once you were not a people, Now you're the people of God. I think we can learn from this group of immigrants. Let's finish the story and wrap up. Verse 18. 
Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered, midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous. And they give birth before the midwives arrive. That's a little bit messy. I don't know about you, but it looks like Shipra and Pooh are liars. If you feel better by calling it creative civil disobedience, then have at it. <laughs> so, whatever you call it, they outfox Pharaoh. Let's read on. So God was kind to the midwives. And the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, He gave them families of their own. Isn't that a great story? Their courage. I'm not suggesting God couldn't have done it without them. I'm just saying their courage preserves a nation. And there's something even bigger at play. I have made you a light to the Gentiles. Their courage helps the movement of God take the next step. We don't even know if anybody ever knew that they did this. We don't know if all the midwives started doing it. We don't know if it's just an isolated case that they're telling this part of the story. We don't know if like Israel as a nation ever knew them, if they ever showed up in the Hall of Fame, you know, somewhere. But God saw it. God saw it. And it becomes this critical part of what He's doing. Shipra and Pua. We know their names, by the way. Maybe we'll meet them one day. Wouldn't that be fascinating? Pharaoh's name? We can only speculate from ancient ruins and guess which one it was. This is a breathtaking story. Think about it. A powerful, ruthless leader is defeated by these two midwives. God is doing what God does. He takes unimportant people, the foolish things of the world, and He confounds the wise. He takes people whose hearts are committed and works through them when no one else is looking. D.L. Moody said, the world is yet to see what God can do through one fully committed to Him. Well, here's a couple of them right here. And we get to see what God did. These two women become the mustard seed of Exodus. They get to be the seed in the ground. Their courage, their grit. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, Therefore, brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to your labor in the Lord because you know your work is not in vain. Whether anyone sees you or not, this is God's Word for us today. You give yourself fully to God's activity in your life. And at times, no one's going to see it. No one's going to appreciate it. It's going to cost you. It's going to be unpopular. God sees it. It matters. Let's look at the last verse. Pharaoh gave this order to all the people. 
The midwife planned in work. Every boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile. That every girl let live. By the way, this is this Pharaoh's last recorded words. We don't hear from him again. We'll hear from the next one. They were effective, his words. A lot of babies died. This is the kind of things that political leaders sometimes do. A lot of people pay the price. Maybe for his fear and anxiety. It's, that's not for me to judge. I'm just saying, was there another way? Was there another door God had for Pharaoh? Could he have learned the way of trust, fearing him? He is surrounded by a whole nation of immigrants that knew him. At least we're supposed to. Give yourself fully to the work of the Lord. You don't know how God will use it. It may be way after you're gone. Your faithfulness, your trust, your fear of God. So a lot of babies were killed, but not one. One of them survived. We'll talk about that next time. Let's pray. Lord, as we begin this journey in this book about what it means to be a free person, what it means to be a free family, a free individual, God, would you, would you call us into that way? Would you call us into this place of fearing you, of making, giving you our ultimate allegiance? We want to say that you are worthy of everything we have. God, we, we are troubled as a nation by all kinds of fears and insecurities. We are troubled as individuals by those same kinds of fears. They, they speak to, this, to us frequently. And they try to turn our allegiance away from trusting you in the places in our lives, in the challenges of our lives, in the gaps of our lives that we feel wanting, we feel lacking. God, would you meet us there? Would you give us the grit of Shipra, of Pua, to do what is pleasing to you? And when we don't know, may we lean in your direction and not give ourselves the easy way out. Lord, as a church in our nation, we've often taken the convenient way. We repent of that. We've missed the opportunities under our noses many times. People you've placed among us to love, to serve, to treat as one of our own. Help us be that kind of people. God, we know this matters deeply to you and we know that you're watching. Would you help us? Father, I pray for anyone here this morning who like Pharaoh does not know you, either because of their ignorance or their neglect, would you help them come to know you through simple, childlike, immigrant faith in Jesus? Help them. If they have questions, give them the grit to ask the questions. Gotta help us not to get caught up in what the culture says on either side. 
Would you put our focus and our allegiance squarely on Jesus? Help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.